It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Lighthouse Faith Podcast, moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. You know, most Christians celebrated Easter a few weeks ago on May 4th. I'm sorry, April 4th, that is. But May 2nd, um, today, if you're actually tuning in on May 2nd, uh, millions of Orthodox Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. So why the different dates? Well, um, my guest today um, can answer that question and pretty much all other questions people ask about God and creation, the resurrection of Jesus and all things religious in nature. And that's because he's the Bible answer man, Hank Honograph. And uh, some questions you'll find on the website for the Christian Research Institute, which he founded, questions like who made God? How could a good God um, create a world in which things go desperately wrong? And one of my favorite topics, can aliens account for the origins of life? Wow. Now, Hank himself caused quite an uproar a few years ago by converting from evangelical Protestantism to the Orthodox Christianity. He's he's the author of more than 20 books and has his own podcast called Hank Unplugged, and he joins me now. Welcome, Hank. Oh, it's nice to be with you, Lauren. I had you on my podcast as well. (laughs) Well, now, how is your health, first of all, because you had a, a terrible bout of cancer, Um, and that you have prayed over and people have prayed for you and you have recovered. Is that what I understand? Yeah, absolutely. I have recovered. And it's it's a miraculous recovery in many ways because I received the blood of another person. And that has uh, ramifications for the Christian faith. So I had what's called an allergenic transplant. I received the stem cells of one of my children those stem cells engraft into the bone marrow, and then you have a completely different immune system, a completely different blood system. And to the extent that your immune or blood system survives, you're not going to survive. It always reminds me of what John the Baptist said. He must increase, I must decrease. And so I have a completely different blood system and immune system. And as far as I can tell, there's no sign whatsoever of the stage four mental cell lymphoma that I was diagnosed with four years ago. Wow. Wow. Now, has COVID caused you any concerns, even though you've got this whole new immune system? Well, yeah. I mean, if you have comorbidities, then I think it's really wise to get vaccinated. It may be wise in general, but certainly if you have uh, comorbidities as I did, and then also I'm almost uh, 71 years old. So I think it is important for someone like myself uh, to have been vaccinated. But what's really interting about this, Lauren, you don't look is 71, that... look 71, by the way. I can't. You really don't. <laughs> well, you know, you know what's really interesting about this is when you... Uh, receive a transplant as I did, mm-hmm. you start over as a baby. So June 11, 2019, it's also the year of COVID, but it is the year uh, that I celebrate as my first birthday. Wow. And, 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 and then I have to get all new vaccinations because uh, like a, a newborn, 
uh, you're starting with a clean slate. Wow. Wow. Um, this is amazing. And I know that you've done a lot of prayers. I know a lot of people have prayed for you and you're just incredibly grateful and thankful for the scientific minds really that have, that God has sort of allowed for these things to happen. And I, I always want to give credit for credit is due. And it's like, even though the push has always been about science, about science, it's like, but who gave the scientists the minds, you know? And where did we get science? I mean, Western civilization coming out of a Christian context allowed for scientific inquiry. So science really formed within the cocoon of Western civilization based on the platform of the historic Christian faith, the faith that demonstrates that there is a God, that Jesus Christ is God and demonstrated that he is God through the immutable fact of resurrection, and that the Bible is divine as opposed to being merely human in origin. Well, as long as we're talking about the, the resurrection, um, for many Christians, millions in fact, um, and we're recording this on a Thursday, which is Holy Week for Orthodox Christians um, leading up to um, Easter Sunday. And Thursday in Holy Week is called Maundy Thursday. And what is Maundy Thursday? What does that mean? Well, this is the epicenter of the divine narrative. It's a narrative that begins with the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And so we think about what Jesus Christ said at the Last Supper. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And when you think about this on an epic level, Lorne, you think about the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're talking about the anti-historical state. The, the time before history, as it were, uh, you have a tree of life. That tree of life was, was the epicenter of life because it stood at the very Shekinah glory of God, and it was for human beings to forever partake of, and therefore forever to become more and more godlike. Mm -hmm. But Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden— and so we don't see the tree of life again until Revelation chapter 22, that famous last chapter of the Bible in which the angel shows John the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And then the text says, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So you have the tree of life in the anti-historical state, and then you have it in the eternal state. But here's what this, this incredible statement by our Lord points to. It points to another tree of life that stands on the fulcrum of history. And on it mm. is the Eucharistic bounty so think about the tree of life replete with fruit in the Garden of Eden, then in the eternal garden, but on the fulcrum of history, it is the cross. And so Christ sheds his body and his blood so that we can partake of the tree of life in the present. 
and then go, as the Apostle Paul points out, from one glory to another glory with unveiled faces. And this is one of the reasons that I myself became Orthodox, because I believe in the real presence of Christ. Now, we do not in Orthodoxy try to explain that using the scientific method. We yeah. say this is a mystery. So the Orthodox like to live in what I like to call the land of antinomy, the land of tension. Uh, we say this is the real presence of Christ. Some Orthodox don't like that phrase, but this is Christ really present. And when we partake of of the Last Supper, it's not a mere memorial, but we receive what is called zoetic energy. It is not biological, it's not bios, it's zoe. And, and, and that energy transforms us and allows us to have the transformative power to turn the world right side up, very much like the early Christians did in the first century. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you mentioned something about the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Why wasn't the decision to go to convert to Roman Catholicism? They ought to believe in the presence in the Eucharist. Yeah, well, there's a lot of reasons why uh, I'm not I'm not Roman Catholic. Um, I, I do believe that uh, some of the greatest apologists and some of the best missions have come out of the Roman Catholic Church. I have great friends within Roman Catholicism, but people have sort of a an inaccurate notion that Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy are closely aligned, where the truth of the matter is Protestantism and Catholicism are more closely aligned uh, yeah. than, 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 than Orthodoxy would be with Roman Catholicism. So th there's a real split between Western theology and Eastern theology, uh, uh, particularly in terms of emphasis. So, mm -hmm. for example, in Western theology and within Roman Catholicism, there's sort of the juridical idea of atonement. It's law language. It's, mm -hmm. it's God the Father pours out the wrath on the Son. Well, in Eastern theology, the emphasis is different. It is that Christ is the balm of Gilead that heals the sin-sick soul. So in, in the Eastern view, sin is a sickness and Christ is the healer of that sickness. So there's a different emphasis in in the East than there is in the West. The other thing that could be said about this is that the, the Orthodox Church considers itself the Church of the Seven Ecumenical Councils. Now, in Protestantism, uh, most people don't uh, don't adhere to the councils at all, and if they do adhere to them, they adhere only to the first four. In Roman Catholicism, there have been somewhere in the vicinity of 21 councils. And in some of those councils, huge changes have been made. For example, the idea of uh, purgatory, which was first advanced in the 15th century, and then it was, it was uh, ratified in the 16th century, the Council of Trent. So first formulated at Florence and then ratified or codified at Trent. Uh, but this whole idea of purgatory is completely missing in Eastern Orthodoxy. Why? Because Orthodoxy is not given to 
innovation, it is given to perpetuation. Now, I could go on, but those yeah. are some of the reasons why I chose uh, to become orthodox. But, you know, there's also something uh, that is, you know, interesting in that it's not just all of these different emphasis. I mean, it's a lot of people say, you know, my husband, of course, is Greek Orthodox and I'm married in the Greek Orthodox Church, um, but believe that the Greek Orthodox Church is the original church and the um, the real church. I mean, that, that in itself, though, doesn't that just cause divisions and, and, and perpetuate something that just keeps happening within Christianity, which is everybody splits up and decides they, they have the truth? Yeah, well, again, this is one of the reasons I became Orthodox, um, and and I'll answer that question specifically in a moment. But if if you think about uh, church history, uh, first of all, there was a split in 1054. Uh, that's the date that's typically given, but the split began simmering long before that. But that's when the Western Church excommunicated the Eastern Church over what is known as the filioque, or the phrase, and the son, which was added to the creed. So now you have uh, a split that takes place between East and West. 500 years later, there's a split that takes place within the Western Church, which is between the Reformers, and Rome. Um, now, right up until that point of time, I'm talking about the Second Great Schism, mm -hmm. which took place, we call it the Reformation. Right, right, Up right. until that point of time, all Christians were unified around one singular truth. It was inviolate. And that was that Christ was really present in the Eucharist. Yeah. And this was considered a mystery. It was never explained in a Western scientific sense. The word transubstantiation was never appended to it. It was considered a mystery. In fact, uh, the Latin phrase, ironically, was used to describe it, the mysterium tremendum et fiscinons, meaning wow. the mystery that causes us to tremble and yet attracts us. So all of Christianity was centered on the truth of Christ, the very thing that we're talking about, Monday, Thursday, the, the, the truth that Christ was really present in the Eucharist. Well, then, all of a sudden, you have this split that takes place in the Western Church, and the Western Church says, oh, perhaps the sacraments really don't matter. Mm. Uh, eventually, by the time you get to Zwingli, Zwingli says, you know, uh, the, the real presence of Christ. Well, I, I think that's bread worship. I think this is just a memorial. In fact, wow. uh, if, you, if you really think that Christ is present, how can you explain this? Well, Luther, in answer to that question, who believed, by the way, in the real presence of Christ, said, right. if you can explain to me how Christ can be one person with two natures— I can explain to you how Christ can really be present. In other words, this is mysterious. It transcends our ability to fully understand. We believe it because Christ said it. You know, um, I want to talk about the dates of Easter for the Western Church and the Eastern Church, the North, Eastern Orthodox Churches, because it's just one more layer of things that we kind of, you know, have this difference of. And I think in this third millennia of, um, of Christianity, it's time to bring them back together rather than allow them to keep pulling apart. And I, I, that's what I want to talk about. Like, why do are these different dates? I mean, a lot of times uh, the Easter's are almost the same time. Sometimes they're like a week different. This is the first time since I've kind of been involved 
where it's been like a whole month uh, later. Why the different dates? Well, first of all, let me say you're absolutely right when you say it's about time that we started uh, celebrating Pascha, which is the capstone in the arch of Christianity. It is the highlight of the Christian faith. If Christ is not risen, the Apostle Paul said, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. But Christ is risen indeed. And by the way, we don't believe that through blind faith, but rather faith founded on a refutable fact. But again, I absolutely agree with what you just said. It is about time. In fact, why do I agree with that? Not just because I love you and admire you, but because (laughs) this was the sentiment of the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea wanted all Christians to celebrate Pascha on the same Sunday. I mean, you go back and look at the Council of Nicaea. The records are available to us. Mm -hmm. And see that in 325 AD, this was the sentiment. The Nicaean assumption is that the church would be unified on the best methods of calculation, and so they trusted the church to use calculations that would unify them rather than split them. And their formula, by the way, was that Pascha, or Easter, is to be held on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Vernal meaning spring, equinox meaning uh, the, the equality between light and darkness. So another okay. way, in just a, a simple way of saying that is that's the first full moon of spring. That's not quite as precise as I like to be, but that makes it more communicable. So their formula, again, is that Pascha is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Well, the problem today is that we have different calendars. And that has thrown everything into uh, sort of a wacky situation. The the East, which doesn't want to perpetuate, uh, is still with the Julian calendar. Uh, You know, uh, it it takes the name of Jupiter uh, Julius, the founder of Rome. And and the West says, you know what? We don't want to just perpetuate. We want to stay current with science. And so... They have gone with what they think is a better calendar, and I think arguably it is a better calendar, the Gregorian calendar, and a different method of scientific calculation. So, uh, you know, the the Eastern Church says Pascha is to follow the Passover just as the New Testament follows the Old Testament, or just as resurrection follows the sacrificial death of the Lamb. So they go back to what happened with Passover, and they want to uh, keep this in sync, uh, not have uh, the, the, the time of the, uh, the Pascha precede the time of the Passover. Wow. So the East, again, doesn't want to perpetuate. Uh, it, it doesn't want to—it wants, it, it wants to perpetuate, I should say. It, it doesn't want to be innovative. Mm. Well, um, we're going to take a break right now here on uh, Lighthouse Faith Podcast, and we're here with Hank Honograph, the Bible Answer Man, talking about uh, Orthodox Easter and Western Easter. Um, But we're going to be right back after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
We are back with Hang On, Grab the Bible Answer Man. Um, I introduced this whole segment with some of the questions that are on uh, the the Christian Research um, Institute website. And I would like to sort of a lightning round here for you to answer those questions, because people have asked me these questions, too. Um, But one of the big questions that people kind of fall back on, like, well, you know, if if God made everything in the world, well, who made God? What's your answer to that? Who made God? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. But the way we answer that is to say that unlike the universe, which according to modern science had a beginning, God is infinite. God is eternal. And therefore, an infinite, eternal God can be logically demonstrated to be, and this is the operative phrase, to be the uncaused first cause. So to suppose that because the universe had a beginning, that the cause of the universe had to have a beginning simply leads to a logical dead end. So, yes, the universe had a beginning. I believe in Big Bang cosmology. But there's nothing to say that God had to have a beginning because God is not governed by the laws of science that the universe is governed by. Because God himself created the laws of science. Yes, and he's the uncaused first cause. He spoke and the universe leapt into it, into existence. And, 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 and we have to presuppose logically that there is a God because the universe itself has only a certain number of explanations for its existence. We can say, well, the universe is an illusion. Well, not many people buy into that. Mm-hmm. We can say that the universe eternally existed. Well, uh, the the basic laws of science militate against an eternal universe. Right, so right. there aren't many explanations for the universe itself. Uh, the only real satisfying explanation is what Christian theism gives, and that is in the beginning God. Yeah. I mean, it's the idea that, you know, you can go back in science and science, you can you can study science and research science and just think about God as the creator of the properties that you're studying. Right. Gravity is gravity because God, God created that to be that way. He could have created a wholly different kind of um, universe where all of us are kind of operating in our different sort of gravity bubbles. Um, I mean, it's really an amazing kind of like thought process to think that w- why is hydrogen hydrogen is because God gave it that property. Um, and and, and it, it, when you back up that far, it just kind of gets really very, um, you can go, you can call it navel gazing at a certain point, but, you know, I prefer just very interesting kind of stuff. So the next question is, how could a good God create a world in which things go desperately wrong? This is another question that people have about this world today because it is um, it's in an awful mess for a lot of a lot of people. Yeah, well, God could have created a universe in which we were like uh, chatty Kathy dolls. You pull the string, and then uh, the person says, or the doll says, "I love you, I love you, I love you." But that kind of love would not be meaningful for you, nor would it be meaningful for your husband Ted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, God created us with volition. So God created us in such a way that we could act or act otherwise. And without that, love would be meaningless. Uh, so God is not a cosmic rapist that forces us to love him. 
God yeah. creates us in such a way that we can love him in truth, in reality. And that takes will. Now, that brings into the equation the possibility that humanity would fall into lives of perpetual sin terminated by death. It brings into the equation all of the problems that we see in the universe today, the problems that you alluded to. But ultimately, there is a solution to that. And that solution is that Christ comes into the world. Through his resurrection, he guarantees that there is going to be a brand new world, a world in which we will forever be able not to sin, and, and, and a world in which we will have perfect resurrected bodies perfectly engineered for a renewed universe. In fact, the universe itself, says St. Paul in Romans chapter 8, will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And he says, we also ourselves. So this allows for the best of all possible worlds, a world in which we will forever explore the vastness of the created universe, which is now recreated without the stain of sin, mm -hmm. and forever explore a God who is ineffable. We know him in incarnation, but he's also ineffable, meaning we can never exhaust the eternal nature of God. So it's an ongoing exploration of the very one we were created to have fellowship with. I mean, that's the essence of what it means yeah. uh, to celebrate Eucharist. It is fellowship within the Holy Trinity. It is participation in the divine nature, the very thing that we were created for. Yeah. I mean, it's... So I, I could actually talk on that subject just even further, but I want to move on to the next one because this is a, something that um, people have brought up to me. And uh, this is a subject that's on the uh, Christian Research Institute website, so people can go and, and actually find out more about it. But um, can aliens account for the origins of life? And my question in addition to that is about, because in the book of Genesis, you know this, there's a phrase that says... It was at the time that the Nephilim were in the world. And people actually look at that and say, well, that, does that mean aliens, some kind of alien species that came into and it came, were, that were on the earth? So what about aliens? Well, first of all, the Nephilim uh, has nothing whatsoever to do with either aliens or, or, or demonic forces. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the Nephilim are human beings. And, and, and so this whole idea that the sons of God went into the daughters of men and had children with them and created some other species is, is not uh, consonant with the text. It comes out of Genesis chapter 6, and Genesis chapter 6 is the great uh, and glorious chapter in which we have a flood which crushes sin, and out of that, at that flood ultimately comes rebirth. Um, so this has, it, it's a judgment, a judgment which ultimately is a judgment on sin, but that judgment is not a judgment on, on aliens or, mm -hmm. or hybrids between demons and, and, and human beings. So, so no aliens, the, inf inf you know, in, infiltrated the earth, you know, before, you know, there were people on the earth. Kind of no, thing. panspermia, whether it's directed or it's not directed, cannot plausibly account for the origin of life. 
what kind what what was it what was you what were you saying panspermia uh, panspermia basically panspermia? that what is <laughs> literally seeds everywhere Ah, um, that, that's what it okay. means. And this does little or nothing to solve the naturalistic conundrum concerning the origin of life. It just doesn't answer the problem. So no aliens, uh, so despite, you know, uh, well, I mean, those movies, no, no aliens landed on Earth, you know, 50 billion years ago and, and started human nature and human life. It, it, it That's right. <laughs> If you want to know more, you want to check out the Christian Research Institute because it really has some interesting and wonderful things to say. Hank, what's up next for you? I know you've got uh, more than 20 books and uh, you're just healthy and you're grateful for that and you're joyful for that. But what's up next for you? Well, you know, um, you and I have talked about this. When I was in the hospital um, about two weeks after my transplant, uh, I, I got an E. coli bacterium. And as a result of that, I was in a coma for three days. When I came out of that coma, I wondered, what is it that I would have said to God if this was my final moment? Have I done enough for the poor and the downtrodden? And so I have a great, great passion uh, for, uh, for training those who are involved as the least of these. There's a 1040 window, as you're well aware of, from West Africa to East Asia, encompasses about 1.6 billion people. 96% of the unreached people of the world live in that window. And they're some of the poorest people in the world. They've never heard the name of Jesus. And now churches are springing up there all over the place because we're meeting the needs of the poor and the downtrodden. And then through that, earning the right to share the truth and life and love that only Jesus Christ can bring to the human heart. And so I'm involved in training those leaders because they're new. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the converts become leaders and, and they need depth. So uh, I'm involved in training. I'm also involved in uh, some of the um, uh, just some of the basic ideas of bringing the cup of cold water, uh, the piece of bread in the name of Jesus. And this is one of my passions. Uh, my daughter, Christina, who's a good friend of yours, yes. uh, she's also started a mission in, um, along with Father Paul here in Charlotte, a mission in downtown Charlotte, uh, helping unwed mothers, but also feeding the poor and the downtrodden. So this has become a passion for me and one of the things I want to focus on in the future. Well, Hank, I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. It's always a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful opportunity to talk with you. And it's always a learning experience, too. Um, and of course, Christos Anesti and, uh, for Sunday. Um, and to you, day. Christ is risen. Yes. Alidos Anesti. He is risen indeed. Um, Amen. This is um, this has been a wonderful conversation. I so thank you for being here. Well, bless you, Lauren. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.